Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Bruce Thornton, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Dangers of Democratic Foreign Policy, and it was recorded on February 3rd, 2015. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure for me because I love having an audience, unlike my students, that will stay awake and then won't ask if this is going to be on the final. So maybe a quiz later, but no. Um, somebody pointed out that there's an ambiguity to my title. When I say democratic, do I mean democracy or do I mean the Democratic Party? Uh, actually, I mean democracy. As much as I uh, take pleasure in criticizing the foreign policy, particularly of the last six years, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be partisan, but it's been a disaster. Um, actually, actually, it is elements of democracy itself that make foreign policy difficult. And this is not a new insight. We can see this in, among the Athenians of the fourth century BC, the world's first uh, extreme, as Aristotle called it, democracy, that is with a wide suffrage. We saw it in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it was actually de Tocqueville in his classic uh, Democracy in America, who has an interesting a section where he says, foreign policy is difficult for democracies, and they're not as good at it. And what I want to do is sort of expand on that insight of Tocqueville's and flesh it out for you. First, though, let's, let's look at what is great about constitutional government, including democracy. And when I say constitutional government, I'm translating the ancient Greek word politeia, a, a form of government in which power is not the private possession of a king or a pharaoh or of a narrow elite. What the Greeks and the city-states invented was the notion of citizenship and the idea that power collectively is owned by all the citizens. It's not a private possession of the great king of Persia or a pharaoh in Egypt. And that power is used according to uh, law, obviously, written and unwritten, offices, magistracies, uh, deliberation in assemblies, electoral accountability in Athens, one year and out. Uh, the um, citizens taking responsibility for the management of power and that's wonderful. We don't want to go back to anything other than that. So I don't want to imply, either in the book, which elaborates on this at length, obviously, or in my remarks here, that, well, what we need to do is get rid of the kind of government we have, which is one of the great ideas ever invented by the human race and has had a huge impact, which is why today you may notice that even the most autocratic, thuggish regime still calls itself a republic or a democracy. So what's the, what's the technical name of North Korea? The People's Democratic Republic of North Korea. 
Islam, uh, Iran is the Islamic Republic. So even those regimes that are light years from the reality of what a republic or democracy is still use that. And that's testimony to the power of this idea. I think I can sum up this development quite simply. Instead of force, we use language to rule ourselves and to determine what we are going to do collectively as a people. And that's huge. Not violence, but words, number one. A shift from sheer coercion or force or the threat of force to deliberation and discussion that takes place in the open. But there's a problem with that that really speaks to uh, foreign policy, not just foreign policy, domestic policy as well. The process of deliberation through language is time consuming, isn't it? In ancient Athens, you had 6,000 citizens who attended the assembly. Each one had the right to speak. You had to persuade your fellow citizens. You had to argue with them. You had to go through this process. The problem in terms of foreign policy is that often you don't have time to do that. If you have a threat on your doorstep, it's difficult to stop and say, wait a minute, we have to sit down, everybody has his say, we have to deliberate this, then we have to take a vote, Agent Athens, you raise your hand to do this. Now there's a, uh, an anecdote that illustrates this. It turns out well for the Athenians. And this is, as I'm sure you know, the famous Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, when the huge Persian army, about 30,000 strong, landed northeast of Athens at Marathon to invade Greece. And the Athenians, about 10,000 Athenians got there. Well, Athenian military affairs were run by 10 magistrates called strategoi, from which we get our word strategy, etc. They were elected. They were elected by citizens. They were themselves citizens, and there were 10 of them. But they had to have a consensus before they could decide what to do. So some of them wanted to wait for the Spartans. But the Spartans were notoriously uh, loathe to leave their homeland and you know go fight for somebody else and they were also very superstitious and they had some festival going on and they couldn't do anything because of this festival so the other side said we can't wait on the Spartans and they went back and forth back and forth back and forth meanwhile the Persians are unloading their troops and their cavalry and their horses and the guys are saying don't let them get completely disembarked and in order we got to hit them now finally Miltiades convinces a holdout to switch his vote. They attack. The rest is literally history because they defeated the, the Persians uh, and protected themselves from invasion for another 10 years. So that turned out well, but you can imagine situations in which that will turn out poorly. Now the other issue is that when you empower uh, large numbers of people in governing, that means you're going to have a greater variety of what James Madison called factions. In one of the most important documents of American uh, political philosophy is Federalist 10 by James Madison. He says, factions are groups of people that unite around a similar passion or interest. A passion or interest. Now, interest is pretty straightforward. Interest, usually in Madison's day and in ours too, involves property. 
or wealth. There's the people that have it who want to keep it. There's the people who don't have it who want to get it. And they, they form a, a conflicting uh, factions. And interests tend to be or can be short term. In other words, what policy is good for me or for my faction or for my interest, my material interest? So short-term thinking is, in a sense, built into democracy because the most important form of accountability of politicians is the election, isn't it? He has to go before the voters. He has to get them to vote for him. Athens, as I mentioned, had a one-year electoral cycle. We have a two-year electoral cycle. So what this means in terms of foreign policy is that people don't want to think beyond two years. They don't want to think 10 years. They don't want to think maybe even 20 years down the road. Politicians don't want to do that because they have to get reelected. And if the people who are going to elect them don't want to do that, it's difficult for them to. To go before the people and say, I know you don't like this now, but believe me, 10 years down the road, we're going to be better off. Imagine anybody today coming forth in an election with that program. Few have tried, and we know what happens to them. But again, much foreign policy, and this was Tocqueville's point, he said foreign policy requires long-range planning. You can't just wait for the threat to arise and then deal with it. You have to preempt. You have to look ahead. You have to have a program that prepares you, whether that's military spending or strategic thinking or whatever, for that. That's hard to do uh, in a democracy because of that short-term interest. Foreign policy is a long-term uh, policy problem, and democracies tend to favor short-term. Short-term interests, in a sense, selfish interests, not what is good for the state as a whole now and for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but you know, what, what benefits me now. Now, passions in Madison's day were mainly religion. Uh, we tend to think in, in you know, political, politically correct history, well, you know, the founders were all a bunch of rich white guys, and, and they all just served their interests. Colonial America and early America was incredibly diverse. It wasn't diverse in the terms that we're obsessed with, which is race. It was diverse, however, in terms of religion in terms of the different varieties of Christianity that had settled. You had the Puritans in New England, you had the Church of England uh, in Virginia, you had the Great Awakening at the 18th century and the more evangelical sects in some parts of the country, you had the Quakers in Pennsylvania, you had Catholics in Maryland. So these were all different passionate beliefs and ideals that led to factions that could uh, cause problems. Now, that's not so much an issue in our day because of secularization and the decline of faith. Our separation of church and state in the Constitution, and as that has developed uh, over the intervening years, developed in ways, by the way, that would have horrified the founders. Uh, the Constitution does not say a wall of separation between church and state. That comes from a letter by Thomas Jefferson. It only says there will not be a federally established state religion that uses federal tax dollars. 
So what's the equivalent of that today? I would submit that today what we have is ideology. Ideology. And in the modern world, one of the great and persistent uh, ideologies, ideologies has been some form of Marxism or socialism which is a, is a universal belief system that presumably applies to all people, all places, and at all times. And despite its failure over the years, and it was, it was seen to be a failure, believe me, by the end of the 19th century, and if that didn't do it, you would have thought in World War I when the socialists of all these different countries went off to war to kill each other under the flag of their nation that it might have some theoretical problems, but it managed to persist. And I know the Soviet Union's collapsed and we think, well, Marxism is only the, you know, the obsession of university professors, which it is. But <laughs> a lot of the assumptions of Marxism and socialism, of centralization, et cetera, still live on uh, today. Now that ideology obviously can have an effect on foreign policy, right? If people accept, as many did, for example, during the Vietnam conflict, uh, that the United States was a colonial, capitalist, exploitative power, as classical Marxism would say, right? then why would we support a foreign policy such as containment or resistance to communist expansion in various parts of the world? And we all remember that conversation during the Vietnam era don't we? And that had a huge impact on the conduct of that war and the ultimate failure uh, of that conflict. And so that can impact foreign policy because the citizens who embrace it, they have rights. They vote. They can put people in office who will fill, fulfill that ideology. Now something else that's very typical is democracies are impatient. They're short-term, I've already said that, they're impatient. But they're particularly impatient with the conduct of wars. Because wars, however we, do, we can say it's a good war versus a bad war, war is war, war is mass violence. Nathan Bedford Forrest said, war means fighting and fighting means killing. That's what it's about. Once a conflict starts, then every horrific thing that we can imagine is going to happen. They've happened in every war. They happened in World War II, the good war. Prisoners are shot, you know, civilians are killed, friendly fire, we kill our own people. None of those things uh, were absent. But when the people hear about these and add in mass media in the last, uh, 60 years, 50, 70 years in which they can really see them, photographs, then through uh, video, they get impatient. Uh, they don't like to see their, their people killed. They don't want to pay for it. They start agitating for this to come to an end. Now, imagine an autocrat, Vladimir Putin, right? He's not restrained in what he's doing right now in Ukraine. And what he's doing in Ukraine is he's, he's helping the Russian separatists fight the uh, legitimate Ukrainian uh, government. 
He doesn't have to go before the people and explain himself and sit and have an invest Senate investigation, you know, ask questions about what's going on. In other words, that accountability, which is so important for our political system, can inhibit people's actions, leaders' actions. This is why, whatever you think of the uh, Iraq War of 2003, which uh, that's a legitimate debate, yet think of what George Bush did in 2006 when that war was really, really uh, going badly. The insurgency had broken out. And he went ahead, contrary to all the polls, he sent in the extra troops for the surge, which helped turn it around. Uh, and that was, that was a brave thing to do. Even if you think it was the wrong thing, still, it took political bravery to do that because everything was telling him, polls, the mood of the country, everybody was telling him, we're sick of this, we don't want it anymore, we want to finish it. Right. Now there's also politics, isn't there? There's political interests that will determine what your uh, conduct of the war is. The notorious fear of casualties Obama has said, we're not going to send ground troops into, into northern Iraq. And every military advisor will tell you, and no doubt has tried to tell him, if you're serious about stopping ISIS in northern Iraq, you are not going to do it without some American troops there on the ground. You can't do it from the air. Right? But you do it from the air, you don't get casualties. You don't get the New York Times with front page pictures of coffins coming back, uh, you know, of the dead, and stories about the maimed, right? So political interests will determine what choices are made and how to conduct the war, how to conduct the war. Now imagine if this was true in World War II. I mean, think of what happened in World War II. Up to a million Japanese and German civilians were killed in aerial bombing in World War II. Do you think that any American could do that today? I was telling um, my uh, companions at lunch about a great book by one of our working group members, Bing West, called uh, No True Glory, about the Second Battle of Fallujah. See, I don't think in World War II that would have happened, because they would have sent bombers in, and they would have flattened the whole city, and they would have killed everybody in it, and figured problem solved. Instead of sending men in there to get killed trying to uh, remove the insurgents from the city. Why? Because that's politically costly. That's politically costly. And the people get impatient. They don't like spending the money. Democracies always vote for butter over guns, most of the time. So the whole problem of ideology, of politics, and not just on the part of the politicians or the leaders. There's one truth about democracy. Somebody in democracy is responsible for whoever's there running the show. They got elected. Our fellow citizens put them there, right? Uh, and so some portion of the people are benefiting from the policies, no matter how wrongheaded uh, or how dangerous for our security or for our, uh, our interests. And again, that issue of accountability, which we don't want, we don't ever want to lose that. We always want politicians to be accountable to us. The main way they're accountable 
is through elections, the ballot box. But in terms of foreign policy, it can privilege short-term interests, political interests, material interests over the longer-term strategic interests of the country uh, as a whole. And so that's, that's one of the great dangers. Here's another, free speech. I mean, free speech is the linchpin of our political order. It's the linchpin of constitutional governments going back to the Greeks. They invented the idea of free speech. There are two words in ancient Greek for free speech. I don't think you can go to any language of the 5th century BC anywhere in the world and find one word for free speech because the concept doesn't even exist. The idea that you can go into the agora, the Greek marketplace in Athens, or you go into the assembly and you can be poor and you can be illiterate, you can be a, but if you're a citizen, you can stand up there and you can speak your mind. And they understood that if the citizens are going to rule, they have to be able to deliberate. And if they're going to deliberate, they have to feel free to deliberate without the fear of, you know, somebody coming in the night and dragging you off to a, a prison or throwing you in jail. And that's great. We don't ever want to lose that. We always want to defend that. Right. But there's much that has to go on in a war that should not be the topic of public conversation because the enemy's listening. They know exactly what uh, is happening. And let me give you the example I think that's, that's revealing. You remember in 2002, 2003, the run-up to the uh, Iraq War. 2002, Congress passed the resolution authorizing the Iraq War. It was democratically authorized and legitimate. Then in the spring of 2003, after the war starts, Howard Dean, who's the governor of Vermont, which has fewer people than Fresno County, by the way, <laughs> it does, he suddenly appeared on the scene during the beginning of the primary season, and he catches fire. How? With an anti-war message which galvanized an anti-war constituency. Now, what happened to the other Democratic contenders at that time, primarily John Edwards and John Kerry, who had voted to approve the war, as did Hillary Clinton, by the way, voted to approve the war, had seen all the intelligence that uh, the Bush administration had seen, and that was the consensus, not just of our intelligence services, but of the e European nations, of uh, the UN, Israel, everybody they suddenly turned against the war that they had supported. Why? Because of political necessity. Because they thought, if we don't, right, we're going to be punished in the upcoming primaries because that anti-war base is noisy, it's getting a lot of attention from the media, it's visual, you remember Code Pink and International Answer and the demonstrations. And they thought, we're not going to be on the wrong side of that. Now, the problem at that time, which would have been a problem in any conflict, but the problem at the time was a case of what Napoleon once said. In war, morale to the material is three as to one. That is, morale is three times more important than the material. Now, we had an overwhelming material in terms of weapons and resources over the people we were fighting, 
but they weren't, particularly the insurgency in Iraq, was not fighting a war of material. They were fighting a war of morale. And this goes all the way back to bin Laden and his writings in the 90s, which we, most of us kind of didn't pay attention to, to our hurt, obviously. And he kept saying, America's powerful, it's rich, it's got this huge military, they have no morale. He said, they, are they have foundations of straw. Send body bags back home, they will give up, they will turn around. He said they, they ran from Saigon, they ran from Mogadishu, from Iran, they will again. So they're fighting a war of morale, and we have people in this country who are destroying or attempting to harm morale, which encourages them to think, yeah, we're right. We just need to kill a few more. We just need to push harder. Now, again, that's part of our system. That's part of free speech. That's part of the political process that we go through. And I'm not arguing that we should suspend the First Amendment or we should uh, legislate draconian limits, uh, but we just have to accept that that's one of the trade-offs of free speech and that impacts uh, foreign policy. Now there's another dimension of foreign policy, I think, that is a sort of development of some of these democratic ideals that we have. And that is the role of diplomacy. Now this is a longer story, it's a very interesting story, and, and I obviously don't have time to go into it. Um, but for the last two centuries, an idea arose in the West that all the old truths of human nature and state behavior, that is, people will use violence to get what they want, or states will use violence to get what they want. And so Europe developed in uh, Westphalia in 1648 and then confirmed in the Congress of Vienna in 1815 that we're going to have a balance of power. We're not going to rely on people being good. We're going to rely on them being deterred by, uh, from aggression by the balance of forces arrayed uh, against them. And that held pretty much up until uh, World War I. This was something different. This was the idea that all humans are evolving or progressing, I think it's an important word, we're progressing towards the kind of life and the, and the type of people that the West had progressed to. I mean, you had globalization. We think globalization happened in the 20th century. Globalization really took off in the 19th century. The telegraph, the steamship, uh, and the railroads. Incredibly uh, strength the word. Then you, you had trade that was uniting the world. And the idea is, well, we're all getting to be the same, you know, we're getting to know each other, and everybody wants the same thing. People want political freedom, they want prosperity, they want the benefits of trade, they want the benefits of a kind of open market. Uh, and they're just like us. So we can construct on that what they called harmony of interests. We can construct institutions. Uh, we can have conventions and covenants. 18, around 1860, International Red Cross, the Geneva Conventions. Later on, you get the Hague Conventions, all of which were to civilize war. To civilize war. Now, if you think about that for a bit, war is killing the enemy. And you can say, well, you're going to, you know, 
civilians should be out of bounds. Well, World War I and World War II particularly sort of signatories of the Geneva Convention, by the way, uh, put that to rest. In other words, when push came to shove, it was national interests as conceived of by the people of those nations and their leaders that trumped international agreements. Uh, one of my favorite examples is um, in um, 1928. Did you ever hear of the Kellogg-Briand Pact? Kellogg was the Secretary of State of the United States, and uh, Aristide Briand was the French uh, Prime Minister. They ended up getting Nobel Peace Prizes for this. They all gathered together and signed a big agreement that said, we who sign this agreement will never resort to force in order to resolve our differences. This is kind of the highlight of uh, what one historian calls international moralism, that our relations are going to be conducted according to shared values and morals and principles, et cetera. And we, of course, we know what happened just a little decade later. Every signatory of uh, Briand was one of the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. They had all signed it. They, within a few years, Japan first, and they all violated them. Yeah, we'll sign it. Of course, the great example is Munich. 1938 in September, after uh, Chamberlain delivers Czechoslovakia to uh, the Nazis, Chamberlain quickly writes this little piece of paper and he says, what it read was, Germany and England agree never to resolve their differences through war. And he puts it in front of Hitler and he says, you know, sign this. And he says, yeah, sure. <laughs> Von Ribbentrop who later became his foreign minister, said, Mein Fuhrer, what are you doing? He said, that ah, doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. Of course, he violated it right in March when he rolled into Prague and took all of Czechoslovakia. There's a great, there's a great um, quote from Thomas Hobbes, the arch-realist. He says, covenants without the sword are mere words and will not keep you safe. The point is that the diplomacy is important. You have to have diplomacy, but you have to be realistic and understand that nations will sign documents for whatever reason. They will enter into agreements. They will negotiate with you. But it's not because they really believe in the same things that you do. There's not, I believe, what lawyers who do contracts call a meeting of the minds, an agreement. No, it serves their interest at that moment to sign that agreement, which they will promptly violate the moment that they get the chance, when they feel powerful enough to get what they want uh, through force. The great historian of um, the Soviet terror, Robert Conquest, Hoover Institution fellow, by the way, and he was talking about Soviet-era diplomacy in which we would sit down with the Soviets and get, you know, they'd take our lunch money just about every time. All the START missile defense treaties and reductions and everything, they violated every single one of them. Putin has continued to violate them too. This, we now know this, right? Um, and he said, the biggest mistake you can make is to think that the 
person sitting across from you thinks the way you do, believes the way you do, wants the same things that you do. That you don't. They have their own interests, they have their own aims, and at that moment, it is in their interest to sign the agreement. It's tactical. It's not a reflection of any sort of deeply held belief. Now, this idea arose, of course, in the United States. Wilson, Woodrow Wilson was the first great exponent of this, wasn't he? You can Google and read his speech to Congress to ask for authorization to enter the war in World War I. And it's filled with this sort of stuff. And you all remember the, the takeaway phrase from it. We all remember it. Make the world safe for democracy. Well, what if the world doesn't want democracy? What if people don't want freedom? Or maybe they want freedom, but they want something else at the same time. Because we all know people can want two conflicting things at the same time, no matter how incoherent that is. We, in our society, we prize freedom, we prize equality, but those sometimes conflict, don't they? To achieve equality, we had to reduce the freedom of people, the freedom of association of people. Said, no, you cannot exclude black people from your restaurant. We had to take away their freedom because to do that, to uphold equality, it's a trade-off. But we often want the maximum of each one, or, this is another recent one, more recent. We want to be safe from our enemies, but we want privacy. We want them to root out any terrorist cells that might be among us and who might be planning an attack. But we protest just against collecting not the contents of our phones, but the calls made. And I, I'm not taking a side on this issue. I'm just pointing it out. Well, those two things, something's got to give, don't they? Either you're going to accept more risk or you're going to have to accept less privacy. We often think that we can have, but that's just human nature. Nations and peoples are no different. And we saw this came out in the 2004 when the war began in Iraq began to shift towards the idea of creating democracy and democratic cultures and political systems in Afghanistan and Iraq which from my perspective as a historian of democracy was like, I don't want to say lunatic, but certainly not a good idea. Democracy in the West took about 25, 2,600 years to develop. It was a result of the classical and the Christian and the Judeo-Christian all coming together. It was touch and go for many years, right? It wasn't a sure thing. It relied on a long development of certain mores and customs and, and habits, et cetera. You cannot go into an alien culture that has not had that same tradition and drop democracy in. You can't even do that with things. You know, they thought, well, man, you know, people in Africa are dying of malaria. Let's give them mosquito nets. So they give them mosquito nets and they use them as fish, right? So even technology, tractors and airplanes and stuff, it, you just can't hand it to somebody and say, here, there you go. There's a whole infrastructure that goes with that, isn't there? Even more so with democracy. So it was a bad idea. But it was an idea I think George Bush sincerely held. He was very much influenced by Nathan Sharansky, the Jewish refused Nick, who uh, then uh, was allowed to, to move to Israel. And he wrote a book 
right about the same time. You know, everybody wants to be free. Everybody wants to control their life. That may be true. They also want other things. They may want to obey God and do what he tells you. And if that conflicts with freedom, then freedom's got to go. So it, was a, it, it, was, it wasn't a very well thought out idea. It wasn't very well explained. You know, you say, well, freedom. Well, what do you mean by freedom? What we should mean is political freedom. But what the rest of the world sees is, you mean doing what you want. And we don't want our people doing what they want. Because if they do what they want, they're going to jeopardize their immortal souls. They're going to destroy the religion, and we can't have that. So part of it was just not being able to, to communicate uh, clearly what we were talking about. But that influenced the foreign policy there. So you got the whole three cups of tea phenomenon. We're going to destroy an enemy and simultaneously rebuild the country and teach them political institutions and build them schools at the same time. Now think about that. Killing the enemy is a big enough job, and that's what soldiers are trained to do. But we're going to make them social workers, too. We're going to have them do these things. That influenced rules of engagement that got many, many Americans killed. Go, oh, we can't alienate the people that we're here to help. Imagine if they tried to fight World War II under those same. They rebuilt Germany and Japan. But you all remember, in August of 1945, if you were in Tokyo or Berlin and you walked out your front door, what did you see? The moon. There was nothing left. Right? They started from scratch, and they occupied it for many years. And we thought, no, we're going to go in there, we're going to get in, we're going to create democracy, we're going to turn around, we're going to get out. Again, we're back to the impatience of the people, the election cycle, the political cost. Right? And that's, that's just part of democracy. How am I doing on time? Who's running this show? Can I make one more point, and then I'll open it up? I'm sorry. I could, I could do this for hours, and I know you don't want to do that. Let me end on what is the, and I'm sure many of you have already thought this and figured it out. What is the worst example of this right now? That is the ongoing negotiations with Iran. This is a disaster waiting to happen. You can imagine how the whole calculus of the Middle East is going to change if Iran has a nuclear weapon. I mean, North Korea is a punk state. It's a gangster state. And look how much they have to be taken seriously because they possess nuclear weapons. Iran sits on the world's third largest oil supplies. Right? That's disaster. It is clear that they are playing the negotiation game in order to buy time until they can say, we have a fait accompli, too bad, we have it, goodbye. And yet, this is the same game that we're playing, the same game that Chamberlain played in Munich. It's going to have uh, the same outcome. And part of what makes that happen is the nature of a democracy. When people have political power and you go and you say, you know what, we got to bomb Tehran. We got we to gotta send everything in. All the sites have to be wiped out. Bunker busters, right? First we're going to have to take out their anti-aircraft positions. How do you think that would play? What do you think the polls would be? What do you think the electoral costs would be? So democracy is a great thing. Nobody wants to substitute for it. <laughs>
but it does have trade-offs as all human things do and in foreign policy you can really see a lot of the effect of those trade-offs thank you for more podcasts from the hoover institution please visit hoover.org or hoover's channels on itunes itunes u soundcloud or stitcher i'm chris dower for the hoover institution Thanks for listening.